Uh, Eugene Peterson, in writing on Ecclesiastes, calls the preacher of Ecclesiastes the quester. After the evacuation in Saigon, following the ending of the Vietnam War, there was a man known as the brother. He had a brother who was a soldier in Vietnam. He was a pilot. He was shot down. He was missing in action and perhaps a POW. But he never got his name on one of those bracelets. But the brother in California set out on a quest to find his brother. And he searched in all the villages that he could in Vietnam. And he said, I'm looking for my brother. And the Vietnamese people did not treat him hostily, but he came known as the brother looking for his brother. He came known as the brother. The brother on a quest. This morning, as we continue in Ecclesiastes, we find that as he has said in verse 1, He is on a quest, and he's looking throughout all the earth at nine pleasures that will bring him that consummate satisfaction in this life. He calls them pleasures, and there are nine of them. And in our hunger and in our thirst for satisfaction, in this life, we can learn from this preacher. And we need to learn from this preacher. And learn from each of these pleasures, from his quest, what they have to teach us. Now, this preacher is talking to himself. And he's talking to himself about where he has gone to get pleasure and satisfaction out of this life. So it's an autobiography. And he's writing as one who has been there. He's writing as one who has had every opportunity. There were no closed doors for him. And he's writing as one who had the financial resources and the freedom of time to pursue to the depths every one of these pleasures. And I might add, being an older adult, he has the physical energy energy to do these things as well. Note in this scripture that was read, how many times, how many times the word I, me, my, myself occurs. If you count them, you'll find that they're one less than 40. So he is self-indulgent. He's not thinking about you. He's not thinking about me, a reader in the future. He's not keeping a, a, a log of his pursuit of pleasures, thinking, I'm going to teach others one day. No, he's pursuing them for himself. He is a true self-indulgent seeker. It's as if that he's got his own Westminster Shorter Catechism question one 
that he selfishly reverses, saying, what's the chief end of man? Well, my chief end is to glorify myself and enjoy myself forever. And so, he looks to every one of these pleasures, and we looked at laughter last week, we're going to look at the remaining pleasures this week, but he looks to every one, very specifically with all of these resources, with, with all of the, the heart of a pursuer, looking at them and putting them through their paces, calculating and considering, as he says in verse 11, then I considered all he looks after experiencing them. In verses 2 through 9, he lists the things that he pursued. And then in verses 10 and 11, verses uh, takes up with verses 9 through 11, he talks about what he did in recollecting and reflection. And so, he begins in verse 3 with alcohol. Now, this preacher, this preacher, tries alcohol as an escape from both the mundaneness, the boredom, the sheer monotony, as well as those things that disturb our peace in this life. The stresses, the exhaustion to escape. We don't know if he abused alcohol. We don't know if he became an alcoholic in his pursuit. Or, if rather than staying inebriated, he was simply a connoisseur. That he appreciated and he sampled various liqueurs and beers and wine. Imagine having every day a wine tasting where you could drink without fear of driving home in your chariot and getting stopped by the Israeli police for a DUI test. We do know, we do know that he would have known excesses. He wrote Proverbs, and in Proverbs, he said, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? He could have answered, I have. I've had all those things. He's not writing hypothetically. He's not writing simply having observed, but he can write, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine in response and say, I was one of those. I tarried over wine. I went to fortified wine. I went to mixed wine. Either way, whether it was sophisticated cocktail parties, wine tastings on a regular, if not daily basis, all-night keggers with the guys, he took notes. It says here in verse 3 that my heart still guiding me with wisdom. No matter to what extent he went, he was still looking at it, asking alcohol hard questions. 
Are you keeping my heart satisfied with your pleasures? In verse 3, at the end of that, we see a driving theme throughout his book. And that is this. Life is short. Too short. So, pursue pleasure. Because life is not only short, but life is also hard. And and, and life must offer some meaning, some pleasure, which means joy, or laughter, or rest, and peace. So pursue it while you have breath. Because then life is over. And that's the driving theme, and that's a, that's a part of his quest. Now, before I leave alcohol, let me go down just a very quick side road. At Two Rivers Presbyterian Church, we are not teetotalers. We're Presbyterian with a Scottish heritage. That's one giveaway. But neither do we want to abuse alcohol. Moderation. Moderation. And I would encourage you to know that we many times, those of us who drink, we can, in the pursuit of finding that rest that alcohol can offer, we can exceed the point of drinking wine or an alcoholic beverage for that merriness of heart that the Lord says is fine and, and, and welcomed. We can exceed that limit. And then we can go beyond that to actually abuse a very gift of merriment that the Lord has given us. I want to encourage you, just by way of a side road here, that... While we're not teetotalers, and we're not advocating that, you know, that al- we're not saying that the use of alcohol is anywhere a sin, but moderation. Ask your own questions in the pursuit. Am I pursuing alcohol and alcohol alone for pleasure? In verse 4, he turns from alcohol with his thirst unquenched. It's as if he's gone from the very best wine that he had available to sample, and now that wine just tastes like cheap box wine. It's it's like when I experienced in college, when I was in college before becoming a Christian, there's only one reason I drank. I drank to get drunk. Then I became a Christian, and when I drank, I drank not to get drunk, anymore, but I noticed that the beer tasted different. It didn't, I didn't look to it any longer. That's what changed. I no longer looked to it to satisfy me. And so he ceases in looking to alcohol as he shifts. He now turns to art, nature, construction building projects of great significance. And in all the planning, designing, building, 
landscaping, managing, and staffing of the homes that he would build, we can observe these other pleasures that dovetail in with the construction and the landscaping of homes and and grounds. Look at verse 4. We see art. I have made great works. But like Van Gogh with his missing ear and his attempts at suicide that placed him in an asylum, and ultimately he would take his life, Van Gogh continued to produce art, great art, while he was in asylum. His own art did not give him peace. His own art did not change his life or or prove to have that transforming effect of satisfaction. This is what life's about. So it wasn't found in art. Nature. Look at verse 4. I built houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees. And then it says that in order to have those fruit trees, in verse 6, I made myself pools, which I understand that if you go to Jerusalem, that you can still see the, those great reservoirs that were dug out of the earth for an, an irrigation system for all of these landscapes, the vineyards, the fields, the trees, the, the fruit fields, the, the fruit uh, orchards that he planted. Notice that it's all plural to show just the extent of all of this. It wasn't just I planted a vineyard to see if my heart in the planting of the vineyard and walking through my my own vineyard with the, the grapes growing on the vine, just saying, wow, could I just look at that and say, wow, this is what, this is good. Man, this is, this is a lift to my heart. You know, no matter what kind of day I have, I could just come out here in my vineyard. No, it wasn't just one vineyard. It was whole Napa, Sonoma. It was all of those vineyards. More vineyards than he could walk through in a day. In fact, not only is it plural, look at verse 6. It says, I didn't just go out and water the trees that were growing. I planted a forest a whole forest, and it didn't satisfy very long. I turned from alcohol, art, nature, but it didn't didn't satisfy very long. Now, I believe he's entered into a a different stage of life. He's, He's left the party scene of laughter and alcohol, and he's more into the the building phase of life. And as he's doing that, he's creating his own Garden of Eden with all of nature around him. And so he's the best to advise us because he can tell us that even in our own yard work or even in our own projects, with nature, the weeds will come. Trees will fall. Branches will 
will fall out. Decay will come. This time of year, our flower pots will be filled with with flowers that begin to lose their bloom, turn brown and dry. Now nature, nature is beautifully beneficial to your soul. In fact, some of us, or you, have a nature deficit. You need to carve out time every week for a walk in the sun, be it on the beach or be it in a local park, be it through your neighborhood. Perhaps it's not a walk. Perhaps it's sitting on your porch or perhaps it's something else, but to to let the sun fall on your face. But don't look to nature alone to give you satisfaction. And you would be looking to nature alone if you began to worship nature simply in and of itself. And Deuteronomy says, Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the heaven. Note that God has given nature to you, wherever you live, you have an allotment of nature. Here and living on the coast, we have the beach. We have sunshine year-round. We really don't have a winter season. We, but He's given it to us not to worship a day at the beach or a hike on a trail or a run through the park. He's given it to us that we not worship it, but that we bless Him. That we never separate creation from the Creator. C.S. Lewis wrote Meditations in a Toolshed. And when he wrote Meditations in a Toolshed, he said that he was in a dark toolshed and he noticed through a pane of glass, an upper window, there was a, a beam of sunlight that was coming through the glass into that dark shed. And as he was standing beside the beam, he could see all the, the dust particles floating in the sunlight. He was observing nature. But then he repositioned himself and he looked up that beam and he said it was so blinding that he could see nothing else. But he realized that he was looking into the sun 90,000 miles away, but he was also looking above the sun and beyond it to see the Creator. And that's the idea. That's the rest that we can find, not only in nature, but in all of these pleasures, when we tie them into giving glory to God and not simply taking glory for ourselves from them. Connecting them to God. Enjoying these pleasures with God. He turns to music in verse 8, the second part, He said that he got singers, both men and women. Now, this is a pretty elaborate bows system in his home. 
It's speculation, but he may very well have had choirs of men and women in every room in the palace. So that he goes into his, one of his rooms, the, the main hall or gathering space, and there's the choir. Sing, or they just start singing when he comes into a room. He may very well have had traveling singers so that wherever he goes, they're singing along the road. No need to turn on a radio. I've got human beings to sing. Today, we've gone from a boombox on the shoulder to a single earpiece to two earpieces to big stereo headphones on our heads. But reality, when the music stops, is still there. Nothing's changed. It might have been an escape for a while. I can get through this long run or this long walk if I have music. Or I can get through this mundane day in the office or in the, in the, the school study room if I just have music. Or I've I've just had a very stressful day. If I can just listen to this album one more time. Solomon would say, you're chasing the wind. Oh, it's, it's, music is great. But he said, it alone will fail to quench the thirst that you have for rest, peace, satisfaction. Solomon, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, and I'm not, I would just turn there very quickly to tell you that he is the richest man that ever lived. It says that the weight of gold that came in in one year to Solomon was 666 talents of gold. This is 1 Kings 10. That's translated to 50 pounds of gold a year that came in. Now, I haven't calculated in that culture what that meant. But it says later in verse 27 that the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. You know, when you go to check out somewhere and you're paying your bill, and they have, now they have little dishes with pennies. I've noticed that nickels are going into it and dimes as well. Imagine silver. As common as stone, as common as a penny on the sidewalk, silver has become. And on top of that, it says in verse 15, besides that which came from the explorers, from the business of the merchants, from all the kings of the west, and from the governors of the land, it is unfathomable. Now, I believe that we're poor Bible students when we look at Solomon's wealth for two reasons. First, we don't meditate on just how rich he was. Why is that important? Because we have this teasing thought, well, you know, Solomon was rather primitive. I mean, look at the billionaires of today. I mean, we're talking about today real money. Solomon didn't have access to that. No, 
not only the Bible says that in verse 23, again out of 1 Kings 10, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. So as wise as he was, and we've agreed he's the wisest man that ever lived and ever would live next to Christ, but he exceeded them in riches. Verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 2 says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. In other words, if somebody had the resources, the money, if they had the possible reachable sum of money that they could be truly happy, if I ever get this, I'll be happy, then it Solomon did and beyond. And he said, it didn't make me happy. Second, we do not believe or trust his research and experience. And how do I know that? Because we keep believing we can do it ourselves. We, we have this philo- philosophy, particularly in the West, in America. We have this philosophy that if I want to be happy, then I need money. If I really am to be happy, I need possessions. To not be bored, then I need more toys, more gadgets, more games, more vacations. To feel special. To feel significant. I am somebody. Look at all my my possessions and my money. Or to feel secure. I don't have to to have the struggle of bills or, or that I'm going, to be, I'm going to lose my job or I'm going to be tossed out on the street or I'm going to be homeless. To feel secure and to end all my worries, I need money. Then I can rest. Solomon says in verse 9, he had all of that. All of it. And his wisdom remained with him. In other words, he was saying... He put it through the ultimate test with his ultimate wisdom. He's been there. We can trust him. We don't have to make that vain search for ourselves. He says elsewhere, he says in Ecclesiastes, he who loves money, this is 510, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. One greater than Solomon said, Jesus, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of my favorite movies is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And you might recall how it ends. They're in the, the... the Wonka spaceship, you know, emerging through the glass ceiling and all of Wonkaville and all of Wonka factory can be seen from on high and, and, and Charlie and his grandfather are there with Willy Wonka 
And Willy Wonka turns to Charlie and says, Charlie, what do you think? You've seen all the inside of the chocolate factory. And look at all of this. He said, oh, it's just wonderful, Mr. Wonka. And he said, it's all yours. It's all yours. And Charlie is flabbergasted. And he says, you know what happened to the little boy who had everything he ever dreamed about? He said, he lived happily ever after. Now you can choose, I can choose, to believe a frizzy-haired Willy Wonka, and we can go in that pursuit. Or we can believe the wisest, wealthiest king that ever lived, that money won't make us happy. Possessions won't make us happy. No matter how plural they are. Well, the final two pleasures that our quester experienced were sex and work. Work, he calls toil in verses 10 and 11. Oh boy, look at the time. I don't have any time for sex. Um, No, just a, a few words. Because Solomon keeps it to a few words. At the end of verse 8, he said, I had... Many concubines, the delight of the children of man. And if you have an ESV, there's a footnote beside concubines, and that says the meaning of the Hebrew word is uncertain. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message says about this verse, he says, most exquisite of all pleasures voluptuous maidens for my bed. So that's how, he says, that's how he translates many concubines, the delight of the children of man. You can read in 1 Kings 11, and we find that Solomon had a harem of a thousand women. 700 wives, 300 concubines. In verse 10, it says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. I pray that this preacher, teacher, Solomon, would serve as our substitute this morning. That you would no longer tease yourself, men and women, Nor would you allow Satan, your enemy, to tempt you in the pleasure of sex. Don't tease yourself or be tempted with a harem of partners that are available on the internet or just one other than your mate. Solomon had every personality type. He had every body type, hairstyle, every cultural type and experience, every skin color, and he had opportunity to not deny himself in any pleasure. And in the end, he not only did not find love, 
but he lost his love for God and his heart became hard and without passion. Pursuing to please himself with romance and and intimacy with women or men, he found himself losing, losing the ability to truly love. And he lost because they stole his heart, his love for God. Lastly, in verse 10, when he mentions the word reward, he says, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward. We began to have the first little candlelight of hope. Hope. He says that his heart, and that's the inner soul, experienced pleasure. And that's the word for joy. A a residing satisfaction that is not fleeting. And he says, it was my response in the labor as I was doing my labors as I was doing my work, I felt pleasure in that. Now we're going to come back to this because it's a theme. It's a theme throughout Ecclesiastes. But let me just end by observing that he felt pleasure because he reconnected with his purpose when he toiled. He reconnected with God's design for us as men and women. A design that we see demonstrated in the Garden of Eden where man was placed in the garden. There, walking with God, he could enjoy nature and the trees. He could enjoy sex with his mate. He could enjoy the labor of his hands as he was told to be fruitful, to multiply, to take dominion, to build... And in this moment, though Solomon does not articulate it, he is making an observation that his pleasure meter went up in those labors. He will later connect the dots for us. Where we read in Ecclesiastes 9, Go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Skipping down to verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. There's pleasure when God is connected. And when we reconnect our pleasures to God, then we begin to once again conform to God's design for us to experience those pleasures with Him. In Prince Caspian, Aslan is with the children, and they are going through a forest, and there's a feast set there in the forest, where the table is laden with much food, and there is there's a beverage made from grape that is like wine. And so the children are there, and they notice that there's a young, curly-headed, 
bare-breasted boy. And he's surrounded by young ladies. He's Bacchus, also known as Dionysus. Bacchus is there, and he's wild. Edmund looks at him and says, that fellow has the look of mischief in his eye as if he would do anything. Susan said, if Aslan were not with us, I don't think I would trust him and being here with him and his wild girls. There's a principle for us as sons and daughters there about life here. Pleasure. Pleasure is safe when Aslan is with us. Pleasure becomes safe when God is present. In all of these pleasures, with God included, they do have a satisfying effect because our satisfaction is no longer selfish, but we're able to take that pleasure, connect it to God, give glory to Him. And He says, children, You now understand, I have made all of these things for mine. And now, we take those pleasures rightfully as we follow him in them. They become safe to us. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we have been tempted and surrendered to the temptation, to look to these pleasures to give us satisfaction that we can only find in you. And with this forgiveness, show us in each of these pleasures where you can be found and where we can participate in these pleasures with gratitude and also with worship, by raising a glass, not to ourselves, but raising a glass to you. By building things, not simply for ourselves, but by building them even for your use or for your glory. By each of these pleasures, Father, may we be found as stewards, not needing to be possessors. Jesus, you're the Lord over this table. Would you take this bread and this cup and turn them into wonderful gifts to us? That you would give us the greatest pleasure that our soul seeks for rest, significance, security, and the meaning of this life and the life to come. Give us once again the pleasure of of yourself as we prepare our hearts to come forward and receive you in Christ's name. Amen.